welcome to the A-Level RE Flip Learning Talk. Today's talk is about the use of myth and symbol in religious language. It follows on from my previous two talks about logical positivism and falsification. As usual, the purpose of this is for you to listen, make notes if you wish to, and to respond to the retrieval questions at the end. There are also some reflection questions for you to think about and jot down ideas before discussing them with your colleagues in class. Don't forget, you can stop and replay this at any time to make sure that you've understood what I'm talking about. Previously, we looked at the difficulties encountered when making factual claims about God. According to both Ayer and Flu, the claims believers make about God, in terms of existence, afterlife or love, are entirely meaningless, since they're neither verifiable nor falsifiable. This is because of the nature of God. God, by necessity, is outside of the physical world. Rudolf Otto claimed that God is mysterium tremendum et fascinans, and as such it follows that it's impossible to accurately refer to God given the limitations of human language. God is transcendent and immutable and therefore beyond the realm of human existence. Indeed, when talking about God, it's the mystery and otherness of God which believers are often emphasising. This means that statements about God are often paradoxical or contradictory, as the limitations of our language mean it's impossible to accurately express what they mean. Only an approximation of the reality of God is possible. Take the language used when talking about the Trinity, for example. Just what do believers mean when they talk about God being both Father and Son? Indeed, this type of language, which humanizes or anthropomorphizes God, is deceptive, as in reality, God is neither Father nor Son, male nor female. When believers say God listens to prayers, that can't be a literal statement, as God doesn't have ears. So what does it mean? And why, crucially, do believers use this type of inherently misleading language? The philosophers we're going to focus on today all claim that the language believers use to talk about God is non-cognitive. If you remember, Ayer and Flew both saw religious statements as being cognitive or factual. Non-cognitive means that it's not trying to impart factual truths about God. It's not intended to be taken literally. Instead, the imagery, stories and rituals which comprise the way in which religious language is used are a visual way of representing abstract ideas to convey truths which go beyond the restrictions of human language and inspire a deeper understanding of the divine. St Thomas Aquinas first put forward analogical language as a way of avoiding the problems presented by both univocal language, where language used about God is identical in meaning to language we use every day. So, for example, when believers talk about God the Father, they mean that in exactly the same way as when they talk about biological fathers. This is, of course, problematic as it's incredibly misleading and ultimately anthropomorphizes God. Aquinas also rejected equivocal language, known as the via negativa, whereby we can only talk about God in terms of what he's not, which, of course, tells us nothing about God at all. Instead, Aquinas presented the analogy of attribution in an attempt to say something positive and therefore meaningful about God. According to Aquinas, we can learn of God's nature 
by looking at what God's created. Aquinas presented the illustration of the bull and the bull's urine. Although they're not identical, there is a causal link between the two, and we can learn about the health of the bull by examining the bull's urine. In the same way, Aquinas argued, we can learn something of the nature of God by examining what God has created. There is a causal link between God and the universe, and therefore God has the qualities necessary to make the universe the way it is. Alternatively, the analogy of proportion shows the nature of God in terms of fulfilling God's nature. Just as a good squirrel perfectly fulfills the nature of a squirrel, so God, being perfect, perfectly fulfills God's nature. As God is proportionately greater than humans, we can know that in saying God is good, what we really mean is God is 100% what it means to be God. Well, this still doesn't really tell us anything about God's nature. We, all we know is that by necessity, God must fulfill that nature perfectly. Perhaps this is necessary though. If we were able to entirely comprehend God, God would no longer be the transcendent metaphysical being described by classical theism. Maybe it is enough to point towards the nature of God while acknowledging the gulf that lies between what we can know or refer to and the enigmatic reality of God. One way in which religious faith points towards the truth or reality of God is through symbols. Symbols are central to any religion and in many cases common to all of them. So light, for example, is a universal symbol of truth, hope and life. However, some symbols are specific to religions. The lotus flower in Buddhism is symbolic of the journey towards enlightenment. Om in Hinduism is symbolic of the essence of reality. And the colour green in Islam symbolises al-Jannah or paradise and is necessary to understand the context of the symbol in order to interpret it or decode it correctly. Christianity is full of symbols. If you look around a church, you might still see the medieval symbolism used to convey the gospel message to a congregation who could neither read nor understand Latin. Animals were used to symbolise the gospel writers, an eagle for John or a lion for Luke. Indeed, the traditional shape of the windows, where there are three sections within one, reflect the tripartite nature of the Trinity. Religious art is also full of symbolism. The colour blue for the Virgin Mary symbolises her status as the Queen of Heaven, and countless fruits, flowers, objects and animals represent other key religious ideas or figures. So a pomegranate represents everlasting life, a rose, the wounds of the crucifixion, and keys for St Peter, heaven's pearly gatekeeper. Indeed, we are typically much less fluent in the language of these classical symbols than our predecessors would have been. Paul Tillich said, the language of faith is the language of symbols. This is because he argues language used to talk about God is never intended to be literal. Statements about God point towards the holy, or what Rudolf Otto called the numinous. To presume a literal interpretation would be to miss the depth of meaning that it symbolises. Symbols, as far as Tillich was concerned, point beyond themselves and participate in the reality of what they represent. 
Tillich used the image of a national flag to illustrate this. A national flag is a symbol of the country, that is the values, the people, the history and the culture. But it also stirs passionate feelings in some people, leading them to either salute it or in some cases to burn it. The flag as a symbol therefore represents something much greater and much more complex and multi-layered. In the same way, the symbol of the cross goes beyond merely representing the death of Jesus. It illustrates a range of important truths within Christianity. Atonement, grace, mercy, love, sacrifice. But in addition, it also inspires a variety of responses from the believer. Humility, awe, repentance, adoration. And contemplation of the cross can have a profound impact on the believer in a way that reading the story of the resurrection account in the Gospels may not have. Therefore, according to Tillich, symbols provide more than information or a set of instructions. They reveal a spiritual reality which cannot be expressed fully in any other way. They tap into a level of spiritual awareness and understanding which just cannot be explained or described using normal cognitive language. In his 1958 book Dynamics of Faith, Tillich says symbolic language alone is able to express the ultimate because it transcends the capacity of any finite reality to express it directly. According to the philosopher J.H. Randall, symbols serve four main functions. Firstly, they are motivational. For example, if you think of the cross, it fires up emotions and inspires people to action. Secondly, is social. This arises from the fact that people have a common understanding of symbols which binds them together as a community of believers. The third function is communication. The literal use of language can't convey faith or experiences of the believer, but symbols can. And its fourth function is to clarify and disclose our experience of the divine. Randall says, symbols teach us how to find the divine. They show us visions of God. For Randall and for Tillich as well, symbols can be both deeply personal, allowing the believer to tap into a spiritual consciousness that may have otherwise been left dormant, but also unifying, bringing together a community of believers who all participate in the same experience. One distinctive use of symbolic language is sacred myth, biblical stories which illustrate a deeper truth, so that the abiding truth of the message transcends the culture of its authorship and remains relevant to a modern ear. One such example might be the creation account in Genesis. Most Jews and Christians would be happy to interpret these opening chapters of the Bible. They may say there are important truths being communicated through the story, etiological truths which provide answers to questions about why things are the way they are. For example, how did we get here? What is our status within the natural order? How did sin enter the world? And why do women experience pain in childbirth? So if we were to take the creation accounts as literal, factual truth, we might miss the deeper truths being revealed. 
Indeed, there are many Old Testament stories which many Christians would identify as being myth. The turning of Lot's wife into a pillar of salt, Daniel in the lion's den, the Tower of Babel, or the story of Jonah and the whale. Or indeed the fantastical eschatological imagery in Revelation or Ezekiel. As literal truths, these stories do not sit comfortably with a modern mind. However, to interpret them allows them to remain relevant. In fact, quite often it's the process itself of unravelling the story to reveal the kernel of truth at its heart which is valuable. In addition, in interpreting the Bible mythologically, stories can't be proved wrong and therefore this neatly sidesteps the criticisms from air and flu. We don't expect myths to be factually significant. Their power lies in their metaphorical meaning. Rudolf Bultmann and later John Hick were keen advocates of the process of demythologizing biblical stories. As far as Bultmann was concerned, the real message of the Bible could only be identified if the mythological layers were stripped away. For Bultmann, the birth and infancy narratives in the Gospel of Luke were myths about the possibility of finding God in the most humble of places. Likewise, the miracle stories of the New Testament become illustrations for leading a moral life. For example, healing of the blind becomes having their eyes open to the truth. The feeding of the 5,000 becomes a demonstration of what can happen when people share. The abiding truth of the gospel message, the kerygma, is locked within the text and the job of the believer is to locate and release it. However, where many Christians may accept some stories or accounts or even miracles to be sacred myth, most would draw the line at suggesting that the incarnation, crucifixion and resurrection of Christ are also myth. For Hick, these too need to be demythologized. In his 1977 book, The Myth of God Incarnate, Hick suggests that Jesus was not, in fact, God in human form, but a symbol expressing the way in which God intends humans to be, the ideal, the one who has achieved the likeness of God, which we should all strive towards. For Hick, the resurrection becomes symbolic of the newness of life achieved when a person finds God. It's not intended to be regarded as an historical event. This idea resonates with that of D. Z. Phillips, who said in his book, Death and Immortality, the term eternal life should not be understood in terms of living forever, but as expressing a quality of existence achievable in the now. Adopting a non-cognitive approach to religious propositions means that the meaning can't be proven to be true or false. While this avoids the challenge of verification and falsification, it's not without its problems. How can we be sure we've understood the symbolism properly? What if symbols get distorted or corrupted over time? For example, the swastika, a symbol of prosperity in Hinduism. How do we know when we've stripped away enough of the story to reveal the truth within? And if we interpret things differently, how can we resolve disagreements over the nature of God? The problem remains that if none of the central truth claims in Christianity are in fact true, then what is the point of committing to a life of faith? 
For philosophers like Randall, even the term God is symbolic. It doesn't refer to anything real. To the majority of believers, however, it's important that God really does exist and that God really is good and therefore worthy of worship. If religious language is purely symbolic, then it's deprived of any substance. Thanks for listening. As usual, full teaching resources to accompany this podcast can be found on my website. That's www.alevelreblog.wordpress.com. And you can follow A Level RE on both Facebook and Twitter.